Hi there, I'm Dan Jones. Welcome to the podcast. Here I have conversations with people whose work intersects with climate in some way. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey, and I started this podcast a couple of years ago because I really like talking with and learning from other researchers. I'm back with part of my conversation, part two that is, of my conversation with Professor Anand Nanadeskan. If this is your first episode, if you're just joining us, then, uh, well, I don't know why you started with part two or something, but uh, you can do whatever makes you happy, of course. So welcome. Anand is a professor in the Earth and Planetary Sciences Department at Johns Hopkins University. And back in part one, we talked about Anand's science work. In this part, part two, we mostly talk about Anand's life and his pathway into science, which I really enjoyed hearing about, and I hope that you like it as well. Again, as with the last episode, there are some email chime noises in the background, so thank you for understanding. It's a feature of remote working, and uh, isn't it sometimes that you have these chimes and things in the background, and in the moment, it didn't feel right to interrupt the flow of the conversation to ask Anand to close his mail program or to check to see if it was coming from, from mine. I don't think it was mine. I usually have the browser entirely closed off when I record these, but... Yeah, apologies for that noise. Thanks for putting up with that. And thanks again to Professor Nanadeskan for taking the time out to talk with me. I really appreciated that. And it was a really valuable, really lovely conversation. Okay, quickest intro ever, maybe? Let's go ahead and get into part two of this conversation with Anand Nanadeskan. Here we go. How are you? Welcome back. <laughs> How was your day? Good. Good. The paper we talked about yesterday got accepted with minor revisions and uh, hey. most of which I have already completed. So, yeah. Well, there you go. Well, congratulations. <laughs> nice. And uh, yeah, so now... Happy. Yeah, that's, that's really good. And it's Friday, so you can, like, you know, celebrate. <laughs> you, you can <laughs> mark it in some way. Do you have anything like that? Do you, like, you know, when you get a paper accepted or pretty much accepted, do you have any way I you can don't. mark it? I don't, although my uh, wife and daughter have been talking about how if one gets a paper rejected um, or, you know, a certain kind of rejection, one should should mark that like by getting a plant or <laughs> I like that like an anti-marking it's like no when it yeah when it goes bad so do you get the plant is that like so every time you look at the plant you're going to think about like <laughs> how badly well, that it's went more like, it's uh, well this didn't get accepted but at least I got a plant but at least I got a plant yeah that's right <laughs> so you can take care of it you know something to Something to exactly. nurture. So the plant did the, the paper didn't work out, but maybe I can keep this maybe plant, plant well. <laughs> maybe keep this plant alive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that. That was um uh, this is kind of silly, but I kinda like it anyway. So there was an email waiting for me, uh this is a couple of months ago now. And uh it had it had uh, the results of a grant application or like a fellowship application that I put in. And I was nervous to open it, right? I mean, that, that's mm -hmm. going to 
the the answer was going to say a lot about what the next few years of my life were going to look like, mm-hmm. uh, either reapplying or mm-hmm. having to figure out how to do the fellowship. So I looked at that email. I didn't open it, and uh, I, I had a chat with my wife about it, and we kind of I, I decided like, okay, if I open it and if I get if if I've been funded, I'll go get a celebration pastry. I'll just go like to the canteen. I was at work and I'll go get a pastry. And if I get it, if I open the email and I have not gotten the funding, if they've turned me down, I will go get a pastry. <laughs> I, will go, I will go get a consolation pastry. <laughs> so like either way, I'm going to get the pastry. All I have to do is open this email. That's it. And <laughs> It was kind of silly, but it kind of worked. Like it, it kind of helped yeah. me through that initial yeah. moment of like, yeah. oh gosh, which way is this going to go? Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, uh, I think it'd be good to market in some way. And you know, if you get a nice paper accepted, um, I don't know, nice, nice, nice dinner or something. I mean, mm-hmm. nice dinner at home, obviously, or, or a good uh, carry out, I, not, not carry out or a good delivery thing, I guess. I read on Twitter somewhere, uh, there was someone who, when they submit a paper, they buy themselves a nice bottle of bourbon or something, and they say, "Okay, I'm not going to open this until it gets accepted. Until it gets accepted somewhere, <laughs> in some form." So it gives them like a little thing to to work towards, in addition to getting the the paper accepted. Yeah, so I'm really happy you could come back for part two, and because uh, we talked a lot about lots of good science stuff that you're involved with um, yesterday and. But I also really like talking about it. And I think it's valuable to like share different people's experiences, different people's kind of pathway into mm-hmm. science. And there's lots of possible stuff we could talk about here. But um, one way we could go in is just the kind of chronological way. If you, I mean, sure. you know, like where'd, sure. you, where'd you grow up and your folks and yeah, that, so, that sort of thing. So I, I uh, grew up in suburban New Jersey. Um, my dad, both of my parents are statisticians. Um, my dad worked at Bell Labs with the great John Tukey. Hmm. Uh, so John Tukey was a mythical figure in my my growing up years. Hmm. Um, I so I grew up around scientists who were really enjoying doing their jobs because Bell Labs in those days was just this amazing place that was developing. Uh, it was not too long after they had developed transistors and communication satellites. Um, but uh, Shannon, Shannon was there as well as Shannon the, was there um, yeah. much earlier. But yeah, yeah, error correction codes and things like that came out of there. Um, Penzias and Wilson made their their discovery of the cosmic background radiation <laughs> because they were trying to do satellite communications, and that I think was in the early seventies. Yeah, um, it's fascinating, right? Because they had some of the earliest computer music people working there. Um, it's the lab for a telephone company yes. and <laughs> yes. all this amazing stuff came out of that yes. problem of needing to figure out communications. That's right. Um, um, there's this wonderful book on this called the idea factory. Yeah. It's about bell labs during that, th- mm-hmm. during its golden age. It w- yeah, no, it was a really amazing place to work. And so there was this statistics group that my dad was involved with, um, and that did some of the early work on data analysis, um, speaker recognition, and the kind. Um, one of their their early triumphs was figuring out how to replace a particular switching chip 
that had gone bad. And so they had to, to, to do some of the early work on statistical failure analysis. You switch out the chips too fast and you spend a lot of money. You switch them out too slowly and your telephone network goes dead. So some of that early failure analysis also came out of that group. And, and statistical languages like packages like R that lots of people use these days are the descendants of S, which was also developed in my dad's group. So, so your dad's group. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So that's it's, a it's cool interesting reading the It's interesting reading the references in, in R for various routines. It's like, well, oh, I know him. <laughs> we used to I know have him over for dinner. Well, we used to have her over for dinner. So, oh. yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's really special. That's like a special environment to grow up in. Yeah. Do you ever so use R? I always assumed that I was going to go into science of some sort. Yeah. Um, and then when I was in high school, James Gleick's Chaos came out. Oh, yeah. Chaos was the big thing. And so I was really interested in applications of chaotic theory to to physics and particularly I thought I was interested in turbulence which is sort of interesting because that's actually what I still do right yeah, yeah. a lot of what I still do applied turbulence applied turbulence mm -hmm. um, and dynamical systems yes right? so I went off to college and I was majored in physics um, and then my sophomore year I was looking for a class to take and you know I was looking over the course catalog and my mother was there and she said, oh, look, there's a course in oceanography. You really love the oceans. I'd grown up going to Cape Cod um, at that point for, we've been going there for about a decade during mm -hmm. the summers. And, you know, I had loved the water from the time I was quite small. But, oh, yeah, course in oceanography. And so I took this course from Jorge Sarmiento at Princeton. Um, oh, Jorge was there. Yeah, Jorge was there. Yeah. I, I, I knew Jorge. He'd been there at the time for nine years. He was an associate professor at the time. Um, so yeah. I had known Jorge now for 34 years. Just for context for folks, so Jorge Sarmiento is one of the big names in biogeochemical oceanography. He's written one of the big textbooks and is has been really central to um, pushing us, I think, into this era where, you know, moving from kind of a three-dimensional picture of ocean biogeochemistry to a four-dimensional picture you know, where we include time variability. Um, just for, just for, I'm just editorializing yeah, a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 So you got to know him there like in, at Princeton. Yeah. So he taught a physical oceanography course, um, which I took and loved and got really interested in research questions. I did a little bit of research for him and then went the following summer and said, this is what I want to do. So the following summer I applied to do an internship at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution with Bob Weller, who I ended up doing a PhD with. And so I went to sea for the first time and learned about um, ocean mixed layer dynamics and decided that I was going to go and apply to do a PhD with Bob. Hmm. So that's what I did. In the end, I um, spent, did my PhD at Woods Hole. Now, Bob was a, and is a um, seagoing oceanographer primarily, um, who puts moorings in the ocean and, and develops um observational platforms to look at the ocean and so i was the numerical modeler in the group so i was somewhat a fish out of water but i do think it's it was a very useful experience to have just in the way that you know suburban kids kind of think that milk comes out of a corn and mm -hmm. and uh these days it's easy to think that you know you get data off the internet and you, you can get 
the that that data comes from someone actually having dropped a real instrument in the water and then that instrument generally has some kind of electrical circuit that is measuring something and yes. you actually have to pay attention to all of those details otherwise you may end up with garbage yeah and that ship has gotten to that point in the ocean because there's a crew maintaining the ship and operating the ship right you know there's right. people who do the planning for it, who do all the legal stuff for it. So, yeah. And when you look at that data on just like a plot, just like a X, Y, you know, <laughs> two, like two-dimensional plot, like all of that right. is stripped away. You just see a dot and you yes. lose the sense of all the, the blood, all blood, sweat, and tears that went into, went into taking that dot. Getting that dot, yeah. And the other thing is that without having done a certain amount of that, you tend to take the dots at face value. Hmm. Um, and that's not always a good idea. In my career, I've come up, I've come across a number of cases where the quote-unquote observations don't make any physical sense, hmm. and it's because they're they're not direct observations in many cases, or they are biased observations. They're, but sometimes they're not even direct observations. They're based on an, a model that is applied to something else. For example, we measure the productivity of the oceans of the equator by looking at the light that is scattered back to to space from satellite and, and then picked up by a satellite. Well, how do you do that inversion? How do you go from the, the, the direct measurement of light hitting a satellite to carbon being taken up in the ocean it involves a large number of steps. And not all of those are well known. And so some of the early predictions of Productivity said that it would be the same in upwelling zones as it was in the downwelling gyres. Like that, that wasn't correct. <laughs> we also predict that, and, and eventually, that's the the algorithms caught up with that. And yes, it was correct. Um, so I think understanding that that uh, that one has to be skeptical of both model outputs and observational outputs is a very useful perspective to have. That both of these are human endeavors, and they're yes. <laughs> and when you get humans involved. Things get, things, mistakes get made. Yes, that's yeah. right. I, I won't name any names, but um, yeah, I have heard the occasional observational oceanographer say, when talking about comparing model world and observations, they'll say like, "Well, we use the observations as the truth, right? That's the actual like," and uh, <laughs> folks like. Who, who know a little bit more about it, like yourself, will kind of scratch their heads a bit and go like, I mean, sort of, but we, we should also <laughs> just keep in mind that, like you said, this has been derived. There is a process, like this has yeah. gone through instruments and this has been run through various functions to arrive at what you're looking at right now. So. And there's quality control, right? And, and sometimes that, and that quality control is absolutely necessary, but sometimes that quality control may in fact be removing some of the signal that you want to see. Hmm. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the, the joint, you're in the joint program, the MIT and was whole joint program. So I guess these days I understand think people kind of have an advisor at both places. They sort of work with somebody you know, in, in Cambridge and then so more today than they used to. Um, okay. so when I, when I went through it, you basically, you had courses at both locations. There was a microwave link. Um, but usually you would go down, you would catch a bus to go down, um, something between two and three times a week. 
and then you have courses that could be streamed, but you know you, you generally want to be there. But by generally after the second year, students were based in one location or another. You mind if I ask? Did you did you enjoy it? I, I think uh, I, uh, you know I've spoken to a number of students who've kind of gone through the program. Um, you know, somebody like Baylor Fox Kemper says that he loves it, that he loved it, that that he really got a lot out of it. Um, I've spoken to other people who they said, especially early on, it felt super intimidating and intense, and um, was not uh, now uh, not necessarily the most welcoming in those initial <laughs> phases. And mm-hmm. I'm not you don't you don't have to like I'm not expecting you to like. You know, I I'm had just a, curious I, about I your experience. I had a, a a a mixed experience there. Okay. Okay. You know, it is a. In, in many ways, it's a great place to do oceanography. And it's not a really great place if you're interested in anything else. <laughs> and so you have a lot of people that it, it is not a university. And so that does show up in the, you know, the, a lot of the people who are there, they're great scientists. They're very, very focused on what they do. Mm. And it's, you know, that they contribute a lot to the field by being, by that focus. But um, Woods Hole, by its nature and by the fact that it's completely, basically completely grant funded, doesn't reward easily the kind of interdisciplinary work that, or at least it didn't back then, reward the kind of interdisciplinary work that's become so, so much of a hallmark of our feels since, you know, the physical oceanographers were generally somewhat didn't, didn't interact as much with the biologists and chemists as they do even today. There's certainly people at Woods Hole today who are, who very much straddle that boundary. Hmm. But when I was there, there wasn't as much. I was, I got, I got scolded for going to toxin chemical and biological oceanography. Really? Oh, you were expected to stay within the guardrails like (laughs) you were expected to be on a particular team uh okay so that's and do you have a you have a feeling that maybe that's changed a bit i do have a feeling that's changed a bit i do definitely have a feeling that's changed a bit yeah Yeah. and that's that's important i mean um yeah the the other thing about the joint program is that it did definitely have a sort of weed out mentality in physical oceanography it Mm. varied from department to department yeah. Um, I think that's probably less true now. Okay. But there was definitely a there's definitely a cycle where every other year two thirds of the students failed their their general exams and had to do master's theses in order to continue. And so there was hmm. fairly high stress. Um, yeah. I feel like what is ironic is that some of those people have gone on to very, very, very good some of the people who failed have gone on to quite eminent careers in the field. Just proving that it's not a predictor of anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, the ability, you know, who, who knew the ability to write down equations under t- times test condition doesn't determine how good a scientist you are. <laughs> we're not, uh, we're not measuring for that. That's not, we're not testing for that. Like we don't, we don't test for creativity. I don't know how you test for creativity, but that, the, the you know. problem is that it is hard to test for creativity and it's yeah. hard to test for, um, you know, I think that is that is one of the challenges that we we really face is that um, 
a lot of the things that make a successful scientist are intangible. Mm-hmm. Yes, intelligence is part of it, but so is creativity and so is discipline and how those get mixed together and a given per- person's makes it very, very different. Yeah. You know, at, at this point, having sat on, you know, approaching a hundred student committees, you know, there no two of them are alike. Mm. And when students don't are not as successful as you'd like, it's always something different. It's generally something different. Right. So you're saying there's not a good way to generalize this process. There really isn't a a good way to generalize. And especially if there's any students listening to this, they should recognize that, you know, where you get in, what job, what your first postdoc is, all of those things, while they matter, they are not dispositive and they're not, it's not an objective um, evaluation of your merits. It's a, it's a very subjective evaluation. Over time, we would like to hope that strong work, well presented, will actually win you a place in the field. Mm-hmm. But, um, and that you know, nobody cares where I went to graduate school now, particularly. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. At some point, it doesn't matter. At some yeah. point, it stops mattering. Yes. I don't know nobody cares where I went to undergraduate now. Um, yeah. At some point, that stuff just does, doesn't really matter. And the thing that matters is, you know, um, can you collaborate with people? And can you work well with people? Uh, can you, are you good at sort of being a champion for an idea or a bit of work? Uh, right. And are you, right. that's a kind of leadership, you know, uh, is trying right. to be a champion for something that you believe and, in. Being a champion for a bit of work is something that I think some students struggle with. Hmm. That there is a there's a sort of lone genius mythology that we somehow have uh, elevated in our culture that you know the the real scientist goes off to the room and they they do esoteric mathematics and they come out like Moses with the ten, the ten commandments and the tablets coming down off the mountain and uh, then you know everyone bows down to them and it's like well that's not actually how it works. Occasionally, you know, sometimes somebody. Sometimes you flounder around in the dark for a long time. Sometimes you you build a really good team, or, and and lead that team, um, and often you you propose an idea, and some people like it, and some people don't, and you know the 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 uh, um, the the paper that we talked about earlier, the, the, my, uh, my model for the overturning circulation, when I first presented that at Woods Hole, Paola Chessy was very, very dismissive of it. Really? Which is really funny because since then, she's actually had a couple of PhD students work on implications of it. So, you know, people change their minds. Yeah. What, what changed your mind just, I guess, over time or just had more time to dig into it? Or? Having more time to dig or and realizing that it actually worked for a system that she was studying. Hmm. It was hmm. you know, when, when you see that an idea works for a system that you're studying or that it's productive. Right? It might be easier and, to see. That's, that's often the case that there's, there's, you know, all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Yeah. What makes a model useful is does it generate productive questions? And once you start seeing that there's a productive question to come out of the model, you tend to be more um, more happy about it. <laughs> it becomes yeah. 
something more concrete. It's like a tool you can imagine using. You start to see the possibilities of of using it. So after after MIT, I mean, we did just get finished saying nobody. You were saying nobody cares where you went, but I want to. I want to. I do care. I want to know a little bit more about like it, it, it's. We we know what you're talking about, but I I am interested in your history. So <laughs> so after MIT, um, you. Went to uh, oh, I, uh, after MIT, I went back to Princeton, yeah, where I was an undergraduate, and where I had done a senior thesis at the Geophysical Fluid Dynamics Lab. So I went back to a, a laboratory that I knew really, really well because I had spent a year and a half there working. Had done my first paper as an undergraduate with one of the scientists at the lab, actually in atmospheric modeling, um, and so I worked with Robbie Togweiler there, who had was a longtime collaborator of Jorge. They'd been part of the same group at, at Columbia with Wally Broker. And they had developed this model for um, looking at glacial interglacial variations in carbon dioxide and their relationship with the, the ocean overturning. And, and Robbie, in talking to me, said, well, what I'd like to do is have you take the model and put silica cycling in it. And I thought, oh, that's that's a good thing to do because Dissolved silicate is one of the three standard nutrients that's measured um, when we do hydrographic surveys. And so that's something there's a lot of data to compare against. And yeah, let's see if we can model it. So we took one of these time very coarse resolution models of the of the ocean, you know, three by four degree, 300 kilometer boxes, um, 12 levels in the vertical, very, very coarse. And we ran the model and I looked at the data and one of the things we were looking at was the Southern Ocean. And one of the things I noticed in the Southern Ocean was that we were getting convection that went all the way to the bottom. But that doesn't look right. And then I started looking into it and the, um, I realized that the mixing in that model was horizontal. That the, the effect of eddies was assumed to mix horizontally. And I thought, that's not right because this was a few years after Jim Ledwell at Woods Hole had done this work showing that most of the mixing in the ocean is along density surfaces, not across it. So I said, well, there's an isopycnal diffusion code um, parameterization of the model. Let's turn it on. So I turned it on and the model blew up. Yeah. <laughs> so you said convected all the way to the bottom, huh? Well, like you no, it actually numerically unstable. Oh, numerically unstable. Okay. And I was picturing, a, I, I have gotten a plot like this before where my model's convected all the way to the bottom, like everywhere, briefly. And, uh, uh, you know, you plot it, or I plotted it, and I looked at it and said, okay, why, why is my mixed layer plot also a bathymetry plot? Like, why is, like, <laughs> everything is mixed layer. Right, so your the model blew up. That your atmospheric temperature to zero degrees Kelvin or something like that, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it was just a runaway. It was the it was the Polina thing. It was the runaway Polina effect in a Southern Ocean model that we were talking about, you know, mm -hmm. in part one here, right? So that was numerically unstable when you turned on the this extra mixing parameterization. Um, I see. Yes, I can see. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this right. was unstable, and yeah. and um um I spent the next. There were four of us who spent the next six months working on trying to understand why that was the case. And it turned out there were a, a bunch of very subtle instabilities at play there. Um, some of which 
some of which we worked out, some of which we didn't work out. The last one, which we didn't work out, I just solved about six months ago. So oh, wow. So a long-standing yeah, problem. A long, a long-standing problem. So my first problem was a postdoc back in 1995. Just <laughs> finally solved 25 years later. Um, <laughs> nice. You've given me uh, hope for my t- paper I started in 2014 that maybe I'll. Uh, there's one of them that's been rattling around. Yeah. 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 yeah you know. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, so, so GFDL, this geophysical, the geophysical fluid dynamics laboratory. That's also in Princeton. It's not part of the university. It's a NOAA lab, right? right. So so basically its history was that it was based outside of DC, but back in the 1950s, there was this new device called the computer. And there was a computer at Princeton um, where John von Neumann was. And von Neumann was looking for applications for his computer and said, well, weather prediction would be great. And so he got together with Joe Smagorinsky and convinced Smagorinsky to move the entire government lab up to Princeton. This was at the time when that kind of thing happened. You know, you would get a congressman to agree and it would get written in and things would get built. And, and Smagorinsky then proceeded to hire a bunch of very um, eminent people from around the world. So also back in the, the day when you could get Congress to pass a law that said that such and such a foreign citizen could be employed by a government scientist, they had public law appointments. And so he, he brought in Stuki Minabe from Japan and Brahm Ort from the Netherlands, um, Kirk Bryan and, and Mike Cox, and they started developing these climate models. Um, and so the first actual climate model, the first model to estimate global warming numerically was an atmosphere only model that came out about the year I was born, which came out the year I was born in 1967. And so GFDL then in the late 60s and early 70s realized that they had developed this new field of climate modeling, but there were still not supercomputers in most universities that were able to run them and they needed to train people. And so they set up a memorandum of understanding with Princeton to train, to to start a graduate program as well. And so GFDL um, was one of the first NOAA labs to actually have graduate students working with the atmospheric and oceanic sciences program at Princeton. So it was, it was jointly, jointly governed and it worked in part because the intellectual weight at GFDL was, was very, very strong. And that, that these were the people who were inventing climate models. Um, right. And it's still a model development center. Like that's still, it still is a model yeah. development center. Right. Um, and so, you know, I was there for, uh, so I came back there in 1995, worked with Robbie Togwiler. In 1997, I moved over to Jorge, back to Jorge Sarmiento's group, um, where I stayed for five years, and then moved back across the street to GFDL, hmm. civil servant for eight years. So for most of that time, I actually had the same office that GFDL, which is who my paycheck came from, switched. Hmm. Oh, right. Oh, you just you physically stayed in the same place, and, yeah. yeah. Although I, 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 when I joined Jorge's group, I had an office on the other side of the street. So, it's there, it's an interesting uh, observation that's been made that the the optimal distance for collaboration between people is to have their offices less than twenty or thirty feet apart. And so, um, which I think is sort of true. So 
even though the Princeton Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences program was on one side of the street and GFDL was on the other, and they were separated by about 150, 200, 200 feet, relatively few people went back and forth. And so what I, what Jorge hired me to do, it was to be someone who went back and forth. All right, um, okay. Did, which I did for the five and a half years that I worked for him and then proceeded to do for most of the eight years that or nine years that I was there afterwards at GFDL, just going the other way. Hmm. So, so, so you were doing some kind of model development tasks as part of that work, right? Like the, you, you right. obviously do a ton on the science side, but I think you also do some coding bits, right? Some actual like, yeah. yeah. So we, so, you know, I worked on um, developing representation of bottom topography that, um, that the, the the bottom of the the ocean could be didn't have to be a full cell depth it could be a partial cell i worked on improving icepickle mixing scheme in the models I worked on bottom boundary layer schemes and then when i went back to gfdl i was one of the lead um leaders of the ocean model development team that was developing an ocean model for um the big coupled models that are run as part of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Climate Assessment Process. When it came to making scientific decisions about what went into that model, there would be a couple of us from the ocean team and a couple of people from the climate team and a couple of people from the atmosphere team. And we would say, yeah, we're going to go with this parameterization rather than that, or this parameter setting rather than that one. Right, because right. What you often find is that you change one thing and okay, so now El Nino was better, but your overturning collapsed. Hmm. Or now your SSTs are better, but your sea surface temperatures are better, but you've opened up convection in a place where it shouldn't be. And yeah, those yeah. kinds of, of, of trade-offs, um, we tried to make them as physically justifiable as possible. Um, but there were, there, were certainly, um, there were certainly a lot of... of uh, kind of these balancing acts to... Yeah. to do yeah, the, yeah. it's a yeah. certain level of compromise and yeah. a certain level of yeah. figuring out kind of what you uh, value in that particular configuration of like well what do we want this to be able to do well right and and you know with something like these big physical climate models um the thing that you want to do well the things that you want to do well is you want to minimize your areas in sea surface temperature you want to have a reasonable amount of tropical variability and you want to have an overturning that's about the right size, an Atlantic overturning that's about the right size. Hmm. Those are the three basic metrics, right? But you can get there in all kinds of different ways. You know, one of the other model development things I worked on there was um, looking at the penetration of shortwave radiation and that then spawned a research uh, direction. Hmm. Um, so, because we had a new ocean model and we needed to put light penetration into it. And I got the postdoc who was doing it to turn the ocean blue and see what happened and we got a good signal. And so one of the tricks in doing that kind of model development is to, is to figure out the particular things that make a difference and put those to the side. And once you've developed your model, follow those sidetracks to say, well, this particular, this particular piece of physics makes a difference. Why does it make a difference? What difference does it make? And so that, that it's, it's a challenge in these big model development centers because fidelity is often defined as getting the solution that has the lowest RMS 
sea surface temperature error. And, but you can also define fidelity as having the physics that most look like the ocean. And those don't necessarily line up. Yeah, that's right. And even if you have the the kind of mean state and variability, okay, you you might still have problems with the sensitivity. It might be too sensitive or less sensitive to... Exactly, which is one of the things that your PhD showed. <laughs> That's what it was really about, in, huh. right? And huh. on, what, on what time scale those sensitivities are. Right, yeah, yeah. So at some point in 2011, you uh, moved to Johns Hopkins, where you are now, been there. So um, what was that transition like? like yeah, getting... well, that was a sort of interesting transition. I had not expected that I would leave GFDL, um, but... My daughter was going off to college. We got, my wife and I got married pretty young. We got married while we were both, while I was in graduate school, just immediately after she had graduated, uh, her undergraduate. We had our daughter two years later. I was an empty nester at age 43. Yes. Hmm. My wife at the time was teaching at a small Catholic college in Northeast Philadelphia and where the students were only marginally prepared. Um, teaching four courses a, a semester and, and spending 70 hours a week uh, doing it. And she thought, well, maybe I can apply and see, maybe I can see if I can get a job I like. And so we all applied for jobs at universities. And Maryland was the one that worked out. So, okay. Um, I don't nice. recommend this as a life strategy. <laughs> well, uh- well, I would say if you're going to do this as life strategy, be prepared for a very stressful year. Yeah, because you're you're doing the classic trying to solve the two body problem thing, right. which is very challenging. Yes. Um, it's kind of it must have been kind of good that you were doing it. You know, you weren't necessarily an early career type person anymore. I guess you know you were established. In some ways that helps and in some ways it hurts. And it helps in the sense that you do have a track record. And um, if you are in a rank open job, a position that is rank open, then, and and the position that was posted at Johns Hopkins was really a remarkable one for me because they said, we want someone with a background in climate. Okay, check. I've just been working at the nation's one of the, the top climate labs in the world. Who has a background in fluid mechanics? Okay, that's yes, that's what I do. <laughs> Who either does one of the following things, air-sea interactions, which is what I did my PhD on, ocean-ice interactions, which I just supervised a PhD on, ocean-carbon cycle, which I helped co-supervise another PhD on. Um, they were spying on you. <laughs> yeah, uh, numerical modeling, check. Um, <laughs> Or clouds. It's like, hmm, haven't published any papers on clouds yet, though I did have a PhD who I was helping with. But haven't published any papers on clouds yet. But if they want breath, they'll 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 at least have to interview me. And it was sort of interesting in that you know Hopkins and Caltech interviewed me, University of Florida, which is not as eminent um, an academic institution, did not. But I didn't fit. I was a much better, I was you know, a perfect fit for what Hopkins was looking for. And they were looking for a generalist because we're a small department. Yeah. And so having someone who can help advise the students who are doing 
climate and clouds and help advise the students who are doing ocean ice interactions is hmm. is, is a strength. And so in, in fact, I've I've actually published at least five papers in all five of those areas since Tony Hawkins. So um, I think it's important that you emphasize that fit issue because uh, often like when I've gotten turned down for things, you know, it's it's easy to get too pessimistic, but it's important yes. to keep in mind that like no, like the the folks who did the hiring, like they have a decision to make and they have to pick somebody that they do think is gonna fit what they're what they're what they have in mind. Right. And so them choosing someone else over you is not necessarily a commentary on your work and on, you know, your potential as a researcher. They just have this one job and they need to figure out, okay, who is the right person to join our unit or department. Right. And, uh, and ha having hired some folks and having been on the other side of that, I've gotten to see that firsthand a bit more and see like, Oh, that's, that's legitimate. Like I just hired for a short summer post recently and we got some really good applicants uh, in fact, everybody who applied, I was like, well, they all look pretty amazing, to be honest. But I had to pick one person, and I had to pick the person that I thought fit the uh, right. the needs of the project. And uh, So I think it's important to get that out there so people know yeah, when they... It's not an exact science, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, we're lucky that we're in a field where there's a lot of research money sloshing around, and that also helps. Mm -hmm. um, it is the case that that many universities would rather have a junior person come in than it's because they're cheaper in the short term. Although senior people with research grants are sometimes also more attractive. But you know the uh, it's it's a challenge. And as I say, our, uh, since since joining the department at Johns Hopkins, we've hired we've done something like 11 hires. So we've um, and this is in a department with, with uh, 14 teaching faculty, one research faculty, and two, or 14 tenure track faculty, one research, and two teaching faculty. So mm. basically, the department has been completely revamped. So you know, I've read hundreds of resumes, and yeah, and there are certainly people who we did not hire who are going to have great careers. Yeah, you have to make a decision. You have to pick from that that pool. Yeah, you also pick based on what you know at the time. Yes, and 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 based on, well, I would love to have this person come, but they kind of do what I do, and we're, that doesn't help us as much as having this other person who fills this gaping hole that the department has. Right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, hmm. it's it is hard. Tell me, I'm going to switch topics here kind of abruptly. Can Tell me about the Science Olympiad. Oh. So in 2003, the fall of 2003, my daughter um, came back from middle school and said, Dad, I need to get balsa wood to build a bridge. And uh, somehow we actually managed to get balsa wood to build her bridge because she had gotten involved with this um, organization called Science Olympiad, which is the U.S.'s largest team science competition. Um, you have teams of 15 students that compete in up to 23 events each year. 
Um, and the events are, they range from just sort of basic fun events like science Pictionary to um, engineering design events like building and flying a plane, a balsa wood plane. Um, and in between there are study events, uh, one of which is something called dynamic planet, which rotates between oceanography, um, hydrology, tectonics, and uh, glaciology. And uh, so I, my daughter's middle school was insanely competitive in this. Um, they actually had 150 kids try out for the science team. Um, and so she tried out for the team and got on as an alternate her sixth grade year. And the coach was asking for parents to come in and help volunteer. And so I walked in the door and Virginia Boehner looked at me and said, so would you like to coach meteorology or forestry? Like, um, um, how about meteorology? I've actually taught meteorology. Yeah. And so, you know, it was about half an hour later, I was standing in front of a bunch of uh, middle schoolers trying to explain the and palm theorem. Like, why is it that, that um, low pressure systems tilt back into the shear? It's like, you know, my undergraduates never asked me these kinds of questions. And, and so I, I became, I got very involved with the team and then got involved with running events. And it's been a, a major part of my life um, ever since. I joke that it's, you know, that and my university alumni association are the two cults I belong to. Um, <laughs> that, uh, um, so this year is my, 17th year that I've run run events and my 15th year coaching. Wow. Hmm. Um, so when I came to Hopkins, um, I, you know, coached, coached my daughter's teams all through her middle school and high school career and then ran events in the, they have a middle school division and high school division. So when she was a middle schooler, I ran events in the high school division. And when she was a high schooler, I ran events in the middle school division. And one of the great things about that was that I ran events in, I ran the dynamic planet event for New Jersey for years. Um, and so I did glaciology and tectonics and hydrology. And so coming to a, an earth and planetary sciences department, I had read a little bit of hydrological literature and I'd read a little bit of literature on tectonics and, and on plate tectonics. It means that I'm much more able to talk to my colleagues than the average physical oceanographer hmm. is because I've actually you know, wrestled with how, do, how does one test knowledge in glaciology? And it's, hmm. it's actually been very useful for me as a scientist. But since coming to Hopkins, um, when I got to Hopkins, I got involved in running the test at the Maryland level. And then about a year after that, one of the undergraduates who had been helping run the, the Maryland State Tournament got a social entrepreneurship grant to start Science Olympiad teams in the local inner city middle schools in Baltimore. So I was one of the two people on campus who had actually had experience coaching. And so I went from coaching at sort of teams that compete for the national championship level to inner city Baltimore, which in terms of you know, elite public high school to very, very 
you know, to an, a place where 99% of the students are on free reduced price lunch. Very different environment. So I've I've been I've coached in Baltimore City since then, and um, two years at this one middle school in the Barclay neighborhood, just east of, of Hopkins, and five years at Falstaff, which is in Northwest Baltimore, um, not far from Pimlico Racetrack. You know, it's been a lot of some of my best memories of Hopkins are involved with you know watching watching our kids win medals at uh at state and regional tournaments so um, it must have been really instructive to work with a very like students from a very different kind of set of backgrounds it really is it really is and it's a challenge because you know the middle school kids in a suburban environment particularly suburban environment like like new jersey where you know all of the almost all of the kids on the team are children of immigrants and so for them technical skills and doing well in school. And this was the way in which you moved from a country that you wouldn't want to live in to a country that you did. Hmm. Um, whereas, you know, for the kids at Falstaff, many of whom are, well, many of the children of immigrants are children of immigrants who are working minimum wage jobs, right? Hard work doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily equivalent to success. Hmm. And, and getting them to embrace that is one of the real challenges. I mean, they're great kids. We had actually had a really great team this year. One of the things that I'm heartbroken about the, uh, the whole shutdown is that we didn't get to take them to States. So when you say it's hard to get them to, can you say more about the, the idea that, you know, hard work doesn't necessarily translate into success? Well, if it's you an- are, if, if you're in, um, a working class neighborhood in, in this country, your parents were, were undocumented workers. They, you know, they've come to this country, they've worked really hard. They may be working hard at minimum wage jobs, but they're not getting ahead, hmm. right? Whereas people who are coming with technical degrees from a place like India, they worked hard to get to the top of the pile there. And then they came here and now they can have a house in the suburbs. And, it's pretty clear that doing well in school will bring you rewards, hmm. right? Whereas for, for these kids, it's not the, 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 the connection between school and success is not as obvious to them. Right. And so w- one of the challenges that we face is getting them to focus and really, really work at learning the material. Hmm. Um, getting them to feel like, Oh, this will pay off. This will lead somewhere. This will do something good. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And sometimes once they see the competition part of it, they realize, oh, we need to work at this. But the the somehow the knowledge that that you work hard at stuff and you get better is not it's not obvious to them in the same way. Um, and that's a real challenge. I mean, there's a different challenge that one faces in dealing with the very elite students, which is that um, they may not have realized how much they've absorbed and how then things came easily to them. And now things are coming, things are hard all of a sudden. They don't know what to do. Right. 
what is this feeling? I don't understand this feeling of not automatically knowing the answer. <laughs> I didn't get an A on my paper. In fact, it got rejected, which is the equivalent of an F, which I haven't gotten since I was five. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that, that happens to academics a lot, doesn't it? Like, yes. you know, because often we are from these backgrounds where, you know, we've done what you're talking about. It's like, uh, this is not uniform by any means, by the way. This is just, I think it's pretty common. You you do see folks in academia who have gotten very used to the kind of achievement that you're talking about. And right. so at some point, yeah, when your grants do start getting rejected and your papers do start getting rejected and you don't get the job you want, yeah, you might have to develop a whole new emotional skill set pretty quickly that you yeah, exactly. <laughs> that you exactly. hadn't needed that much in the past. Yeah. You need some resilience. You need to yeah. do some quick resilience yeah. building. And I will say that uh, Science Olympia for my daughter, who is a is a work is is now getting a PhD in animal cognition. That the resilience that it taught her was very very important because this is one of these cases where you try stuff and you fail. And sometimes you mm. fail spectacularly. Mm-hmm. And but I remember uh, I, I remember at one national tournament passing another team that had just unpacked their planes, which had broken in transit. And oh no! Really, really upset. And one of the one of the students was saying, "Mr. B, look, it breaks. We fix it, and then we win. This is how it works inside this game." <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! It's like. Okay, you may not win, but you've definitely learned something really important. Yeah, you know that makes me think. Like I, I wasn't really much of a sports kid at all growing up, um, and this is something I've thought more about lately about how I, that that's part of what could be useful about being in yeah. a sport for a kid is like, no, sometimes you just it doesn't go the way you want, and you have to right. learn how to be fine with that, and you have to learn how to keep going so that it actually can be a lab for building resilience in that, in that way. Yeah. The, the, the learning to enjoy the process of it, even if you don't win. Yes. Learning yeah. to enjoy the camaraderie of the team. Those are, those are definitely important things. You know, certainly in working with middle school kids, it's one of the things that takes time that, you know, this year we had four parents show up at the regional tournament and that was a high. And, you know, often it's because these parents are working, they're working on weekends and they have other jobs. And, but it was very striking that, that we have gone there with no parents showing up. And this year we had four. Hmm. And, good. Yeah. There's, that's, uh, yeah, that's, it's good to see, you know, when parents can be engaged, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's a, a yeah. positive thing. So I kind of am conscious of the time a little bit and I want to make sure that, um, I, I get in a few of these like questions about what you've learned because I think those are kind of nice to touch on. Um, you don't have to give super long answers, but you know, t- take your time. You know, t- do do whatever you like, really. But if you want to give short answers, that's fine too. Is all I'm saying. Um, so, in thinking about what you've learned, uh, what's something that you learned about science that wasn't obvious? Let's say like before you really started doing it the whole process of science and that could be just about how it functions or. Well, I think one thing that I didn't really appreciate going into it was how just it's not all about being smart. Hmm. 
and how how much it's about being lucky and being in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's definitely something to learn. Yeah, we talked about that with your paper yesterday uh, during part one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Right place, right time is a crucial element of it. And we talked about that in, with respect to like getting PhD positions and getting postdocs and getting, and getting jobs. You know, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, that's an important element that you can't control at all. <laughs> how about, um, is there more you wanted to say on that or no, it's okay. What's something, how about leadership? What's something you've learned about leadership as you've over the years kind of progressed into those leadership positions where, like we were talking about, you're championing ideas, you're championing people and grants mm-hmm. and things like that initiatives. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, um, it's interesting to me that 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 I've, I've been fortunate in having people to model myself on and one of them was actually my dad who was a department head and a very eminent statistician at, at bell labs um so i watched how he worked with his people and then i watched how jorge sarmento worked with his people and both of them had this this ethic of both lifting other people up and realizing that you don't have to be the smartest one in the room on everything. Yes. Right. That you can learn from the people that if you learn from the people around you and you, you help them to teach you stuff, you end up a lot smarter than you would be just sitting by yourself. Something I try to remember. That you can become like a focal point for, yeah. uh, let me draw in these different people and perspectives let me draw in the different ideas and yeah. uh, you can, you can make, make a space, you can make a platform where all of those things can kind of iteratively interact and yeah. produce something interesting. The other thing I would say that I've learned about leadership is that a lot of the hard problems that we face in organizations are not just questions of what is the optimal thing to do. It's, it's when changes and um, challenges of people's identity, how they see themselves. And, you know, I think for, for us as academics, some of the challenges that we've talked about are things that, that we built an identity around being smart, mm-hmm. being smarter than everybody else. The things that challenge that identity are hard. We built an identity around a particular field being giving us status. And things that challenge that identity are hard. It's hard to abandon something that you thought, yeah, this was a great problem when I started it, but you know, it's kind of played out now. I need to go do something else. Do you have an example in mind? Or do you have that you can give us? Well, I do feel like in in a fair amount of physical oceanography, a lot of the uh, the big ideas in ocean circulation, right? That the the uh, the really interesting questions are how these things affect biology. Hmm. There's that there's amazing biological data, genetic data coming up to us that that tells us stuff about how different biomes are connected. And but the idea that the biologists might actually know more about how the ocean works physically than we physicists do is a very threatening thing to a lot of physicists. You mean that through through their familiarity with data that has given them a certain kind of intimate understanding of connectivity. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. And the idea that, Oh, there's this, this, this data that I don't understand that, uh, 
you know, I, th I think that that as academics, it's easy for us to build our identity on being the ones who know. <laughs> and that is something that I've realized is a very dangerous snare because you know it's 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 personally rewarding to be the expert, right? But yeah. But you're also putting a lot of right there. There's a risk there if you're putting too much of your sense of self in that yeah. one location. Yeah. There's there's no guarantee that it's going to stay in that one location, there's shifting sands underneath you. Things are, exactly. are changing constantly. Exactly. And it's probably emotionally way healthier to ground yourself in something more basic than something yeah. that you've happened to yeah. achieve, which yeah. is a, those achievements are temporary and transient and right. will be, will be irrelevant. If they're not already irrelevant, they will be irre irrelevant soon. <laughs> and they won't be enough to like build your sense of being okay off of yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that's right. Like, yeah, getting the the PhD, getting the job, getting the fellowship, getting the grant—it won't fix all of your problems. You know, it won't. Uh, right. It can help with some problems in in concrete ways, but you know, you right. you still have to be with yourself, and you yeah. still have to grapple with yeah. your own sense of value and your own sense of self. And I think one of the things is is, is you also you know as someone who is as you work with larger and larger teams and a complex organization that you start realizing is that just people are complicated. Yeah. And, you know, there's no, there's no manual that tells you how to do things right all the time. And <laughs> that's, that, that's just a challenge. And it's especially a challenge at times like this when, you know, our world seems to be overturned. So. Along those lines, um, thinking about a specific role that you have was something you've learned about being a department chair because you're talking about managing people and managing expectations and you know you've got Delegation a certain is really really useful <laughs> yeah you can get people to if, if you're not worried about controlling everything um a lot more can get done um mm. and if you're lucky enough to be in a position that i'm in where you have lots of people around you who are just really good colleagues, then, then that's, that's a great thing. So, so that's one of the po really positive things. Um, one of the challenges about being a department chair is that academics can be very entitled. You know, so there, there is a level of entitlement that academics can feel that makes it very <laughs> difficult to make hard decisions. So if you, if you as department chair make a hard decision that somebody's unpopular with, or sorry, that somebody doesn't like, yeah. you, you, you could be met with a quite forceful opinion about why you, you've made the wrong decision. Yeah. So you might have to deal with a, a big personality. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're in a situation right now where, you know, we're asking people to work harder for no more money. Mm. And that's, and, and, uh, you know, it's important to acknowledge that that is what we're doing. You mean in it's terms of... It's also important to acknowledge that there's not necessarily a choice. In terms of doing more online, like online teaching and... Yeah, yeah. 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 So along those lines as well, um, but, you know, in terms of you've been in these leadership positions 
department chair. And this is something that is like really relevant. It's always really relevant, but it's, it's something that's on people's minds right now uh, a lot is you know, what's something, and I wanted to connect it to kind of your personal experience and viewpoint on this. It's like, what's something you've learned about uh, diversity in the sense of like lowering those barriers to participation? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, not, not every community is really able to come in and participate in say oceanography equally right different you know, different one thing that i really have come to believe is that um and this is both a matter of personal faith and um um experience that there's a tendency to want to look to programs and education to programs to fix problems. Hmm. But problems really get fixed through relationships. You know, that that it's it's if students who feel that they don't belong come into apartment and they don't build relationships and the, and the people who are established there don't build relationships with them. They're going to continue to feel like outsiders. Once you build relationships with people, you no longer feel like an outsider. And so, so the, the importance of building relationships when it comes to diversity cannot be understated. Right. Um, like, like specific, like you need a specific contact you need a specific set of like we're talking about kind of network you to, building well, i guess you to get to know people right if there if, if there's someone who's coming in from a non-traditional background you need to get to know them and you need to you may need to do a little bit of extra work to show them that they are valued and included and um um and it's that it's that extra work that that to, to establish that the, the connection and um because i mean we have students in our department who are first in their their family to go to college mm-hmm. right um and so they don't know that they that people like them can succeed and you know telling them that that yes, I may be a third generation academic, but nobody cares. Nobody cares in the sense of like that doesn't replace the relationship. Like that's that's not actually yeah. a basis for a relationship. For like that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that that and two fifty will maybe get me a meter for a cup of coffee. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and, oh, I see. I, I think I see what you mean now. Like so that I guess for some people that might feel intimidating. I guess what you're saying is like, yeah. no, please, it doesn't mean anything. It it means I mean, it, it, you know. it does mean something in terms of how comfortable you feel. Right. Right. That what do you have an insider's picture of an institution or an outsider's picture of an institution? That it is easy when institutions behave badly and you do not have that experience to think that it's malicious. Hmm. Right. Rather than that it's well this is an institution taking the path of least resistance and it's not necessarily the smartest thing to do. And I understand why you don't like it, but it's not like people are out to get you personally. 
Right. Um, and I do think, I do think that 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 does make a, a difference. Um, yeah. So I mean, it, I was just trying to imagine, you know, approaching a university or a field from the perspective of like somebody who maybe feels like an outsider, and I, I was imagining them asking is this a place for me? Like, is this somewhere where I could actually fit in? And there's a lot that goes into that feeling, isn't there? Because even down to the level of like, okay, on the brochures, on the website, is there anybody who looks remotely like me in any of the pictures on any of the website? Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's like way too easy for a university to just have a very homogenous you know, kind of set of pictures and everybody looks, and like you said, there's not necessarily, in fact, very likely there isn't anything malicious in that. They just, somebody grabbed some pictures and right. those were the pictures that, but because somebody, you know, didn't go, like you have to go to the extra mile, you have to put that extra effort into it and say, okay, let me imagine yeah. this from somebody from a minority community. Yeah. Is this going to help them feel like it's a, possibly a place for them or will it actually lead to, will it actually like contribute to a feeling of alienation or of not really being sure if they belong there or not? Well, I have on several occasions had the, the interesting experience of saying, okay, um, let's, let's look at who we have invited to speak in some seminars. Like, oh, that's not a very diverse group. Are we leaving anybody out? Oh, Yes, well, actually, there's this person, and they would actually be better than three of the people who we already have, mm-hmm. right? And so it's um, it's not it's sometimes it is portrayed as there being a a conflict between diversity and excellence, and I don't see it that way. I think that that often a lack of diversity may be telling you that you're valuing the wrong things. This is certainly something that we found in hiring recently that that uh, when we started looking more in environmental applied environmental sciences, we got much much more diverse applicant pool. It was very eye opening. Right? Um, if you have have made the decision that the only thing that matters is whether people can do math, you may get a less diverse applicant pool mm. than you do if you look to see, are people attacking problems of societal importance? Diversity for me is not an end in itself, but a lack of diversity is often a sign that there's a problem, that you're valuing the wrong thing. You're valuing the wrong things, or maybe just kind of, um, without thinking about it, you're just rolling with inertia, the inertia of, well, these are the people I know, and these are the people I'm aware of. Um, So like, so yesterday on Twitter, I was looking around and there was a, a Google spreadsheet document going around of, uh, so it was a, a list of uh, ge- geoscientists of color was the title of it. And so it's been kind of circulating and it's been like building, like people have been adding themselves to this mm-hmm. list if it's relevant for them. And I, I was browsing down this list and I found somebody who who's doing like really interesting storm surge, like hurricane storm surge research. Mm-hmm. And that's not my area directly, so you know it. It, I, I wouldn't have expected to bump into this person randomly necessarily, but uh, I've got a master's student who's been doing some work in that area, so uh-huh. like it was really cool to see like, uh-huh. oh, she's doing something that's relevant to like mm-hmm. you know what my student's been working on, 
And I don't know, like, so whoever put that list out there, that little bit of extra effort of like, okay, just ask the question, like, is your network, are you just going on inertia or have you made the extra effort to make sure that you're not leaving anybody out, that you're not, that you're not missing people who like really, really would be a a great addition to your kind of overall network of people that you have in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, And sometimes that, that active effort is just what's needed. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a, it's a learning process, isn't it? With those kind of initiatives, like it is about taking positive action, isn't it? You can't just go on inertia on a very different topic. How about writing? Do you like writing? I actually enjoy writing. I'm, I, I don't enjoy revising as much, hmm. but I, I do enjoy the process of sitting down and, and ha- having a story emerge and seeing writing as storytelling is helpful for me. Um, like building a narrative, a scientific narrative. So, yeah. And, and in that sense, having, being someone who is an avid reader of all kinds of genres and who reads politics, who thinks about ideas and who's married to a linguist. And so is, is thinking about ideas a lot, gets exposed to a wide range of ideas is very helpful. Figuring out how to explain things well is something that happens in our has happened in our house a lot over the years. The point where we, you know, exchange manuscripts and like, does this make sense to you? It's like, well, I don't know anything about your field really, but this seems to me be, to be what you're arguing. That's actually really helpful. That's that's great. So you have somebody who is really deeply, like, on a research level, like she works with language and works with structures like that, and can give you that kind of feedback. That's awesome. That's really good. I don't really have a formal wrap up question usually, but uh, I think you're somebody who is really good at encouraging people like we talked about in part one and really good about giving that positive feedback. And uh, that's something that I've, I've always appreciated and well, not, not to put you on the spot too much, but I, I wonder if there's somebody listening who is possibly thinking about getting involved in our field broadly. Um, is there anything you would say to them in terms of, you know, let's say they ask you like, what, what, what should I do? How should I get prepared? What are some of the directions that I could take? You know, what, what's a, I imagine you run into the occasional student like that. I do. And it's something that I try to encourage in my classes. I mean, one of the things that when I teach the oceanography classes, especially the ocean biogeochemical cycles class, but others as well, is to say, is, is to help people define where the boundaries of knowledge are. And one of the things I still like and love about oceanography and climate science is that there's all kinds of questions that one can ask that are still research questions. And we had an unusually cold spring this year. How often do such cold springs happen and are they related to climate change in the Arctic? Well, that's a research question. What do marine viruses do in the ocean biogeochemical cycle? That's a research question. How many, you know, yeah. what role do they, you know, what, what role do they play in, in marine biodiversity? That's a research question. So many of the things that we still, we learn at a fairly basic level are really still research questions. And I think the idea that a lot of students don't have the, don't have the understanding uh, the way we teach science, unfortunately, at the high school level is here's what's known. Hmm. You need to learn all of the stuff that is known. Right. And which is sort of ironic 
And I think it is one of the reasons that we have trouble with teaching evolution and, and other controversial topics. We say science is an inquiry-based system, and we're going to tell you what we know from a position of authority. <laughs> As opposed and to help. People go, that doesn't make sense. And it doesn't really make sense. Whereas I do think that when you present people with the evidence, here's what we know from an evidentiary point of view. And then these are the stories that we tell about that evidence. Is, is a much more powerful way of doing that. That said, I think that one of the real downsides of the way we do it, but by not just sort of saying, there's lots of evidence out here and there's stories that we just, we just don't understand. I think it's very, I think it's much more exciting for students to realize that there's lots of work left to be done. Um, and in our field, I feel like the work left to be done is often in areas of very, you know, things like how does, it, how does climate variability affect the oceans? How does ocean variability affect climate? How do we measure that? How do we monitor it? What are the tools that we can use? What are the physics that we're missing? How do we deal with these, these things that are affected by multiple balances? How do we constrain what's actually going on in the system? Um, those, are, those are still really big questions on the physical side. And on the biological side, the questions are even more wide open. But uh, there's just basic fundamental questions about how biology in the ocean works that we don't understand. Yeah. And how sensitive to how it might be sensitive to change that we don't understand. Yeah. That's one of the things that makes the field exciting to me is the the distance between, you know, what we know and a cutting edge research question is pretty mm -hmm. short. Like you don't have to go very far. Okay. Is basically Yeah, you don't have, you don't need 10 years of math to be able to understand the questions. No, that's right. And you might be able to make a contribution surprisingly quickly i mean there's there's no guarantees but you might find yourself lucky enough uh, pointing back to our talk about being lucky in the right place in the right time um yeah. that you might find yourself in that right place and right time and able to make a contribution pretty early mm -hmm. on without too much without too much special effort necessarily um different people have different experiences but the field is so young that there's still lots of room i guess is the mm -hmm. point for those fundamental yeah. contributions. Great. Well, Anand, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure well, to talk to you. You're welcome, Dan. Anything else and you want I, to... I don't, I, I don't know if you want to, to, to keep this on record, but I was just wondering how your own, your own uh, career things are doing. We can go offline for that if you'd like. Oh, sure. Yeah, I can, uh, yeah, I can, hit, I can hit stop and we can <laughs> keep talking. That'd be fine. The part three of the podcast offline. Good. Thanks again, Anand. I appreciate it. There you have it. Thanks for joining us. I hope that you enjoyed that. You can find Professor Nanadesigan on his university webpage. Like I said last time, I don't think he's on Twitter. I'm uh, at Dan Jones Ocean on Twitter, and you can follow the podcast at ClimateSciPod. We do have some more disability in the Earth System Sciences episodes coming along soon, soonish. Looks like the next part might not come out until November, so thanks for your patience there. We've had some production delays along the way for various reasons okay yeah so i said i'd share something personal at the end of each episode like a thanks for reaching the end it feels weird to share these mundane personal things sometimes because on the one hand who cares uh, i mean and, and why would you really 
But on another level, why shouldn't I just like be open? Why should I hide? I want to practice being open and, and free. And I don't know, that's what I'm working towards. It's a, it's a long process. So my uh, absolutely uh, boring mundane thing I'll share with you. Today at morning tea, virtual morning tea, we talked about music from our teenage years. And I shared that the first two CDs I purchased were uh, Bush's Razor Blade Suitcase and Metallica's Load album. That was my, my first two. That's back when you had to go into a store. It was a big decision buying an album, right? You, you had, it involved a physical trip to an actual store and you had to pick it up, take it to the counter. Anyway, that's it. Hope you're doing well. Take care. Bye-bye.